Well, I want you to find two places in your Bible, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, and then Exodus 15, verse 22. We're in this series entitled, Caring for Your Heart, and we're often repeating eight important statements. You have a soul. It is uniquely you. It was created by God, so it's your most important possession. It will exist forever, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Therefore, it is of the utmost value. So this morning, I want us to think about guarding or keeping our soul. Look at Proverbs 4.23. I'm in the New American Standard. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And then Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, Moses wrote, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter, therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses and said, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet." Now, the question might arise, if we're talking about guarding or keeping the soul, then why did I pick a verse about the heart? So let's dig into this just for a moment, because, and I've had some few, a few questions on this. It applies to the entire series. Some believe in a bipartite view of man. In other words, man is only body and soul. Others believe in a tripartite view of man body, soul, and spirit. And they would point to Hebrews 4.12, which says the word of God is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit add in the body, and you have three. Yet Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, bipartite. And then he said in Luke, we should love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind. And I could quote other scriptures regarding this, but the short story is the Bible has many ways of pointing to the same subject. The soul, the heart, the spirit, even sometimes depending on the context, the mind, and even strength in Scripture can refer to a person's inner being. And the heart is used over a thousand times in Scripture, usually referring to our inner person. So this is important. In fact, when we consider Proverbs 4.23, Proverbs gives us admonitions about our mouth, our eyes, and our feet. But the heart, Solomon says it has to be guarded or kept. So a Puritan named John Flavel wrote, The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. The greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Even after we think about all that Jesus has done for us, even when we rejoice in his grace, his patience, his provision, his mercy, his glory, our heart still drifts. There's another, it's a well-known quote, and it's by a Puritan named Octavius Winslow. That sounds like a tight end for the Chargers to me, but uh, how many of you remember Kellen Winslow? I'm getting old. Okay, nobody, never mind. <laughs> He graduated from Mizzou and played for the Chargers. Let's, go, let's, let's dial this back. Octavius Winslow was a Puritan with a lot of wisdom, and he said our hearts have a, quote, secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from God. They have a tendency 
They have a secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from God. The focus on the heart is also necessary because verse 23 says a spring of life flows from the heart. So we're going to see what that means, how to guard our heart, and what Exodus 15 has to do with this. As we go through God's word this morning, first, let's just consider the importance of the heart. The heart, or the soul, encompasses three main areas. Our minds, which include our thoughts, our judgments, our attitudes, and our imagination. Secondly, our affections, which include our emotions, our desires, our longings, even our dislikes. And then our will, our choices, our decisions, and even the motivations behind those. That's our whole person. So it has to be guarded with all diligence because your heart and mine is under a three-flank attack. The world comes at us from one side, the devil comes at us from another, and the clandestine attack, the one that sneaks up on us, the one that we do not think of as something that will attack us, the clandestine attack is our own heart. Our heart within us is a Judas. It wants to hand us over to sin. It's deceitfully wicked, Jeremiah says. It's often a traitor. But there's something else you need to know about your heart. God wants it. Proverbs 23.26 says, says, My son, give me your heart. God wants your heart heart. I'm not referring to salvation. He wants you to be on board with who he is and what he's done, that you rest in his grace, but you're also involved in the kingdom that he's building and the kingdom that he has to come. And it's so easy to think that we're on board, but Isaiah said something of the Hebrews that is true of us. He said, these people draw near with their words and honor me with lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and the reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. So that's the importance of our heart, which leads right into the purity of the heart. Now, it's been rightly said that God is more interested in who we are than what we do. The who you are is your soul, that's your heart, it's your very being. If the heart is wrong, then the life is wrong, regardless of any apparent outward fruit. If the heart is right, then the life is right, regardless of any apparent outward fruit. If there is anything that the last 10 years has taught us in evangelicalism, it is surely that outward ministry and apparent fruit are never better than the man or the people behind it. It grieves me even to say this, the stunning fall of Ravi Zacharias in RZM ministry, Johnny Hunt, Mark Driscoll, Sovereign Grace Ministries, Tulian Chavidian, uh, Ted Haggard. I could keep going, but they demonstrate this truth. And since this is true, purity of heart is vital to Christian living. Look again at verse 23. It says, from the heart flows the springs of life. The word springs means source. So everything you do comes from what's in your heart. Everything you are comes from what's in your heart. Your virtues and values, what you really think, and ultimately how you respond to things come from your heart. This is why the who you are is more important than the what you do. So it means there's a need for the personal awareness of purity. 
Stephen Olford said, if the center of the life is holy, then the circumference of the life is holy. But any attempt to change outward behavior without changing the heart is doomed to failure. So how do we change this heart problem? We're going to talk about that a lot. Stephen Olford gave three ways. His outline, my, my stuff behind it. He said, number one, your mind must be dominated by the word of God. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That means reading the word and then relating it to our life. Reading it and relating it. And you and I know, and listen, this is true of me. One of the hardest things in the world to do is to carve out that time of prayer and Bible reading. And it's hard because Satan hates it. And he'll do anything to stop you from it. You have to fight for that time. Because for the heart to change, the mind has to be dominated by the Word of God. It always has to be in there. Second, we have to be filled with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. That's an interesting little phrase. It's written in the imperative tense. That means it's not a promise to claim. It's a command to obey. So how do we do this? Moment by moment, you yield control to the Holy Spirit. And folks, he will convict you of sin. Not with a sledgehammer, but with that still, small voice. Don't let that moment pass by. Repent of that on the spot. Apologize if others are there. Crucify it in your heart. And then grieve over that sin. Remember that Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn. He's not referring to human death. He's referring to mourning over our own sin. Then when you mourn over your sin, the Spirit comforts you by pointing you to Jesus and his complete forgiveness of sin. And this brings humility into your life. You recognize that you are a sinner, but Jesus continually forgives you. It brings humility and encouragement in your walk with Jesus. So as the Spirit begins to fill you, you become more aware of him in your moment-by-moment -moment thoughts. You also become more aware of your sin. And here's a key. You become more repentant over your sin. Some of you just tune me out. Tune me back in. Repentance is so often misunderstood. It's looked, at, looked on as a negative, but repentance is a blessed, ongoing part of the Christian life. J.I. Packer said, Repentance is turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself about God to as much as... I, I blew that. Let me try it again. This is why I'm reading it. J.I. Packer said, Repentance is turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know about yourself to as much as you know of God. Turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know about yourself to as much as you know of God. So as you repent, you're just surrendering yourself more and more to him. And being filled with the Spirit is not a matter of you getting more of him. It's a matter of him getting all of you. So your mind must be dominated by the Word of God. You must be filled with the Spirit of God. And then you must be motivated by the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 30, 31 says, Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our motives are never perfect. We demonstrated that last week. If you were here, I tried to open that umbrella again and I threw it away. 
It was broken. Ask God to purify your motives and then move forward. Ask Jesus to direct you into thinking, walking, talking, living, and serving in ways that bring glory to him. To quote Olford again, he said, Our devotion and service to God can only be accepted if they proceed from pure hearts. He did not say perfect, but he said pure. So there's the personal awareness of purity. There's also the practical awareness of purity. How can we get an idea of what is truly in our heart? And the answer is to have a spiritual MRI. John Flavel said, heart work is hard work, but to shuffle over religious duties with a loose and heedless spirit will cost no great pains. But to set yourself before the Lord and tie up your loose and vain thoughts to a constant and serious attention upon him, this will cost you something. So let's do an MRI of the heart this morning with the definition of the heart being the mind, affections, and wills. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose some questions. Some of you are going to want to hear these again. This will be on YouTube right afterward, and then when Nathan gets back, he'll post it to our website. Some of these questions are original with me. Some of them are not. But let's start with the mind. How often do you think about spiritual things? The person and work of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. One writer said, how many Christians today could sit in a room without any resources and think about Jesus for more than five minutes before they run dry? John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. In it, he asks, what is the proportion of your spiritual thoughts compared to thoughts about other things? In other words, what do you think about when you're not actively engaged in something? We know how easily distracted we can get during a quiet time or a sermon. Are we distracted about Jesus and spiritual things while we're doing something else? What's the predominant character of your thoughts? Are they often negative and critical and judgmental? Do you try to think about what Paul said in Philippians 4.8? Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Here's one that I think is pretty frank. Are you jealous of other people? Pause on that one for a minute. You think in your heart, you know, I don't like that person over there, but... The real reason is envy. Is covetousness often on your mind? Are your thoughts always dominated by comfort and leisure and travel and sports? That's the mind. MRIs always, aren't always pleasant. This will be over in a few minutes. <laughs> Number two, the affections. What are your predominant emotions? Is it joy, anger, self-pity, gratitude? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? How would those who know you best answer that question? If you struggle with a sinful emotion, what steps are you taking to mortify it? In other words, put it to death. Paul said he buffeted his body to make it his slave. Here's a significant one. When wrong emotions come to the top, do you usually just give in to them? or Are you ruled by them or do you fight back? against those emotions are you gossipy i read a sociologist just last night 
I didn't get much details, but he said sex, in his uh, uh, study, he said 60 to 70% of human conversation is gossip. Do you enjoy worshiping Jesus? If not, why not? What makes you the happiest? What makes you the saddest? What makes you the maddest? Jonah saw the conversion of a whole city, yet was unhappy about it, and then he pouted over a withering plant. Do you get worked up and frustrated over things that in five years won't even be remembered? Do you often get upset because you're just sure others are criticizing you and gossiping about you? Or maybe the hardest question of all, when someone else prospers or receives praise, can you rejoice with them? Those are the emotions. Then there's the will. Can you identify with Paul's struggle when he said, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. Is your conscience being shaped and informed by the Word of God? Is it more shaped and informed by the Word of God than it was five years ago? Do you often act against your biblically informed conscience? Are you engaged today in that which would have deeply troubled you five years ago? How often do you pray in secret? What does your prayer list look like? Is there praise and thanksgiving on it? How often are you part of church prayer meetings, praying with your brothers and sisters? When you discover something that's in your heart and is sinful, is it your normal practice to repent immediately? Do you ever go back to someone and apologize for something you said or did? But pro tip here, by the way, if that person doesn't know what you thought, don't call them and tell them. Talk to Jesus about it. I had someone call me one time, man, I need to apologize to you. I used to think you were this or that, and I realize I'm wrong. And I thought, why did she think that in the first place? Do you do things for God's glory or the praise of men? Our motives are never perfect, but they can be sanctified. Now, all this is hard work, but it's fruitful work, and it's a way to guard your heart. That's a brief spiritual MRI, but there's a problem with that. An MRI can only diagnose. It can't heal. So there has to be, number three, an attentiveness to your heart. Solomon said, guard or keep your heart, not someone else's, yours. And the heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. So in being attentive to your heart, remember that your heart has friends. Our heart needs friends. Winslow said, rock to sleep by a merely formal religion. The believer is beguiled into the delusion that his heart is right and his soul is prosperous in the sight of God. So we need friends to help us attend to our soul. We'll go through this quickly. One is prayer. Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any offensive way in me. Make that a prayer and God will answer that prayer. That's scripture. We know it's in God's will. Another friend or brothers and sisters in church who have a sound walk with Jesus who you can talk to. And Ecclesiastes 4.12 explains why. Solomon said, if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. But a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And there's a third friend and his name is Jesus. And he guards us from the danger 
of attending to our perpetual and alarming departure from God. Now, how is attending to our perpetual and alarming departure from God a danger? When you attend to your heart, when you do a spiritual MRI, you look at it. And if you're at all honest with yourself, what you're going to see is pretty ugly. We get an honest picture of what's been called the idol factory that is our heart. And we think of all that Jesus has done for us, and he's been so patient and so forgiving, and yet my heart is still that sinful. I mean, I'm not any farther along than that. And despair can set in because you say, this is, I, just, I can't believe how sinful my heart is. So in the 1800s, the brilliant Robert Murray McShane astutely recognized the danger of this. He didn't live to be 30 years old, but he had the wisdom of the aged. He said, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. When you see your heart, and then you also see Jesus and all that he's done, his finished work on the cross, his empty tomb, his victory over sin and death, his grace that is greater than all of our sin, we rejoice. I mean, when you see it all, you see your sin and you see the grace of Christ. Winslow said this, Take your discovered sin, bringing the cross of Jesus with a killing crucifying power into your soul, giving you such a view of the Savior suffering for sin, a view you may have never had before, and in a moment the enemy will be slain at your feet, the friend of Jesus. So we have friends, but we also have enemies. They never stop. And we could list many commonly known enemies, but some of them are Trojan horses. In other words, we fail to recognize their disguise and we let them in. And I want to cover two significant internal enemies that we have to guard against. Now, one is presumption. Some see Christianity as merely a message of forgiveness. Ask them what it means to be a believer, and it's this. Well, if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And technically, that's true. But despite that belief, the life goes on unaltered. It's a head belief, but the heart is not changed. There's no heart belief. Others would say Christianity is simply a set of moral beliefs. That is, we're to live ethically, which tends to be subject to cultural whims, we're to live morally, which tends to be subject to political predilections, and we're to work diligently, but the heart has never changed. There's no heart belief. In both cases, there's a presumption upon God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, in my estimation, are the magnum opus in the Bible on how to be saved. If you just had to summarize it quickly, that's what I would give to someone. We're saved by grace. Through faith, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. But verse 10 is something we shouldn't leave out. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Works and walk. If we can summarize all that, it comes out like this. Belief always affects behavior. Belief always affects behavior. The gospel encompasses our entire life. 
Presumption occurs when there's a head belief, but there's no heart belief. The heart has not been changed. Salvation occurs when the heart is changed by the power of the risen Jesus. There's a belief in the risen Jesus. He changes your heart. You're a new creation in Christ. And then biblical behavior will follow. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? Okay, it's a great book. I really want to commend it to you. He wrote that book in prison. And in it, he wrote of a man named Presumption. Christiana, the main character, came upon Presumption and his companions, Simple and Sloth. All three were in chains, but they didn't seem to care. So he warned them of the danger to their soul. He said, the devil can combine. You would be prey for his teeth. But then he said he could show them how to remove their chains. And Simple said, I see no danger. Sloth said, a little more sleep. And Presumption said, each tub must rest upon its bottom, which likely means everyone can stand on his own two feet. So they ignored Christiana's offer of help. Later, he and his fellow pilgrims doubled back. Simple, sloth, and presumption had been hanged by their own chains just a short distance away from this hill that had three crosses on it. So there's the enemy of presumption, but likewise beware the enemy of lethargy. Now, I've heard it said that America is the hardest place in the world to be a Christian. I don't believe that. But the blessings of America do lead to an expectation of a comfortable life. Some of these people at the eyeglass clinic in Mexico had to row a boat across a lake or a river just to get a pair of used eyeglasses, eyeglasses that many of them had never had before. A comfortable life can lead, can produce, I should say, a lethargy toward the faith. That's why disciplines like giving and serving and witnessing, going on a mission trip, even doing things we don't necessarily like are important for our soul's spiritual health. In Matthew 24, Jesus said something that it's always concerning to me. He said, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. That's a prophecy. Most people's love will grow cold. I don't want my heart to become so hardened with all the evil and wickedness and injustice in this world that I just grow cold and unfeeling. Man, I don't care about my lost neighbors anymore. I don't care about my church. I'm out. I got my ticket to heaven, so leave me alone. That would be an extraordinary neglect of your heart. But here's something that, I, here's something I've learned. Your heart can easily become harder as you grow older. You get bumps and wounds and heartaches and scars. You get spiritually worn down. The danger is that you shut down. So J.C. Ryle said lethargy, or idleness as he put it, is the devil's best friend. He said, an idle mind is like an open door, and if Satan does not come in it through himself, it is certain he will throw something in to arouse bad thoughts in us. Do you realize that no created being was meant to be idle? Service is the appointed lot of every created being. Angels are ministering servants. Seraphim and cherubim, 
uh, serve him right now. Adam's job was to take care of the garden. If man isn't doing something for the kingdom, Ryle said his soul will soon get into an unhealthy state. I mean, if the body doesn't move, it atrophies quickly. If water is standing, it becomes stagnant, and the heart grows hard. Do you know how the heart grows hard? By doing nothing. It takes no effort to harden your heart. Just ignore the Word of God. Ignore the preaching of the Word of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Just be lethargic. I mean, a person becomes proficient at anything he does if he does it long enough. So the heart can become this unattended plot of ground full of noxious weeds and thickets. To use a medical term, it would be sclerotic, rigid, and unresponsive. That's where we need number four, the cleansing of the heart. And this is where Exodus 15, beginning in verse 22, comes into play. The Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. Moses led them out with signs and wonders. And all the people, remember this, they see the extraordinary deliverance of God when the Red Sea collapsed on Pharaoh and his army. So now it's on to victory. But in verse 22, it says they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Verse 23 says they found some water, but it says when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Remember, at this point, they had seen God's power over creation. He turned the Nile into blood. He parted the Red Sea. He could surely turn bitter water into potable water. But even though Moses had led them out of bitter slavery, they turned on him and bitterly complained against him. And that was a practice often in the wilderness. And folks, if your default practice in life is to complain and find fault and grumble, then please learn from this. 1 Corinthians 10.10 says, Do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. It is poison to your heart to have a complaining spirit. The problem at Mara really wasn't the water, even though it was undrinkable. Remember, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The problem was they didn't trust in God despite what they'd even seen with their own eyes. And yet, having said that, it's really easy to criticize them now. Man, how could they do that? What would it look like if there were 40 or 50 verses of Old Testament narrative written about us? What would that look like to people thousands of years later? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It's sinful. God has the only solution. And he uses that which looks like utter foolishness to natural man. Verse 25, the Lord showed him a tree and he threw it into the waters. Well, what good would that do? Well, verse 25 says the water became sweet. The wood made the water sweet because the wood came from God's tree. There was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. There will be a tree of life in the New Jerusalem. And there was another tree in Scripture, another tree of God, located on a hill named Calvary. And Acts 5.30 says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. The cross is the tree that heals our bitter heart-destroying sin. Jesus does for us through the cross what we cannot do 
By his death and resurrection, he cleanses us from sin. He makes our soul holy and undefiled in his sight. And if this morning you would say, I have never experienced that, then I want to invite you to become a Christian, to be saved, to genuinely turn away from your sins and trust fully in Jesus alone for salvation. Not your works, not your walk, not what you can do, what Jesus has already done. And I want you to know something. If that's you, and you say, you know, I'm not a Christian. Maybe you're saying I'm not interested. Maybe you're saying, well, you've got my attention. There are people here that are rooting for you. And you say, these people don't know me. No, that, that's true. They may not know you. But we have a church full of people who come to church on Sunday morning, and one of their prayers is, Lord, if there's anyone here who's not saved, I pray that you would save them. You've got people rooting for you. You've got the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus. Don't stop there. Put your faith and trust in Christ. If you have questions about that, or that's something you've done today, grab that little card and fill it out. Put it in that basket, and I will be in touch with you. Or talk to me, talk to someone else here, and just say, hey, I've got some questions, or I've been saved, what do I do next? We would love for you to enter the joy of the Christian life. And I know many regular West Haven people have heard this, but I didn't get saved until I was 24, so I remember the battle that is going on. If that's you, there's a battle that's going on in your heart. It's not your body. You may have some adrenaline right now. I did. But the battle is not in your body. It's in your heart. So surrender your life to Jesus today. That's the invitation. Would you pray with me?